Hello, listeners. In this episode, I'll be discussing Frederick Jameson's 1984 essay, Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism, with my friend Emmett Penny. If you're interested in this discussion, you might want to check out the link in the show notes to a two-part seminar I'll be offering on June 10th and 17th through Speakeasy on Jameson's text, as well as Jean-Francois Lyotard's The Postmodern Condition, in which we'll attempt to define this concept of postmodernism and postmodernity and figure out to what extent it applies to our current situation. So in many ways, it'll be a continuation of what Emmett and I discussed in the podcast. So again, if you're curious, check out the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Emma Penny is the co-host of the Exhaust podcast and a writer for various outlets, including most recently the American Conservative and the bellows yeah probably those two are also my best known and then the third being uh lecture porn the vulgar art of narcissism from a few years ago in paste magazine yeah which i is one of my favorite essays to go back to which unfortunately remains relevant (laughs) unfortunately yeah that problem has become both bipartisan (laughs) and like way more deeply ingrained in our culture yes it's really um yeah it, it caught on to something that sadly has become you know one of the dominant <laughs> genres of the culture so yeah you were a a, a prophet um yeah who, unfortunately um, yeah yeah who saw all of our ever more horrifying future yeah is it is it in the gay science where the guy like smashes the lantern in the church or whatever <laughs> to warn everybody that right. god is dead yeah 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 sort of like that so yeah that essay i i will link in the show notes it's one of my f- absolute favorites thank you and, thank you um, it it just uh, continues to be relevant to observing the discourse as it unfolds. So in any case, um, I have been honored to appear twice on Emmett's um, podcast, Exhaust, which he co-hosts with friend John. And it's a really wonderful podcast, one of my favorites. And it uh, is probably unique for its combination of, I would say, depth and breadth in the sense that they cover everything from movies to the nitty gritty of supply chains and um, the electrical grid to... Yeah, that's our recent, um, that's our most recent a, like obsession, yeah. Yeah, to doing a, a survey of um, American, liter- American literary classics. So it's really a, a real, um, you know, broad scope, but at the same time it is unified around the concept of a world in which nothing feels possible, right? And yes. what, what the causes of that situation are and what the um, possible remedies for it might be, if any. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's a really great show, which I recommend people check out if they have not. And um, it's because I love the show so much that I invited Emmett on. And, you know, also because he's just somebody whose who's voice I appreciate very much um, to talk about a text that's, quite canonical and quite, um, you know, in some ways controversial. And at the same time, I'd say maybe somewhat forgotten. It's, it's not necessarily discussed all that. Um, I don't know if you, <laughs> if you follow as I do all the sort of theory memeing and things like that, like 
I wouldn't say that this text is um, all that much sort of no. part of the popularized theory world that we see on the internet today. No, but so. interestingly, it features heavily, if I remember rightly, in the opening of Mark Fisher's Ghosts of My Life. Mm. In fact, mm-hmm. this whole discussion of nostalgia mode is pulled right out of this essay. Um, and that's how I found out about it. I, yeah. hadn't, I had never read it until you asked me to. And as I was going through, I got to the part that Fisher quotes and I was like, oh shit, this is that, uh, this is that moment. So it was good to see those things in greater context um, and to really appreciate, but, frankly, what a masterful contribution this essay is. I was yeah. very impressed. So sorry, I think I've, we've, I've been being coy here, so I should name the essay, which is oh, yeah, post, we haven't done Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism by Frederick Jameson. And it was originally published in 1984 in the New Left Review, and then republished in, with some slight modifications in 1991 as part of his book of the same title. So it's, I'd say, one of the handful of texts that sort of defined this concept of postmodernism for that period. And as I think you're getting to, what's, what's interesting is that it has this sort of afterlife where I think it's often cited by by people who are more widely read today, like Fisher. Um, but it's maybe not itself all that widely read, I would say. Um, I'd say that's fair. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, it's it's a somewhat dense text in a kind of uh, Marxian idiom, very influenced by figures like Lukács and the Frankfurt School. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't quite have the, the sort of um, fluidity and sort of um, vernacular engaging quality of someone like Mark Fisher's writing, mm-hmm. which, you know, one can understand why it's somewhat more popular. And obviously he's a writer, Fisher is a writer who was sort of, um, you know, who, who had an academic background, but was also a figure of the blogosphere and, and geared his writing in that direction. Whereas, mm-hmm. whereas Jameson is a, is a pure academic, a highly, highly prestigious and accomplished uh, literature professor. And overwhelmingly, and, like the depth of his cultural reference in this, I've felt lucky going through that I've lived a life where I could catch most of the American references and had seen some of these things in person or some of them were my favorite books or I was aware of them. But uh, unfortunately, I'm also a provincial American. So some of the European stuff I had to go look into um, and I was amazed at his comfortability in moving across those things and unifying them. I mean, it was masterful throughout. Yeah. So it's, it's really a, a very wide ranging essay that, you know, tries to bring together a range of different sort of cultural forms and expressions as um, instances of a particular, uh, you know, something that goes beyond a cultural mood. It, it sort of appears to be a cultural, but what he wants to argue is that it's actually something deeper, right? Mm-hmm. That it's, um, that it's a, um, uh, a period in the sense of a period of um, a sort of political economic organization mm-hmm. that is manifest in the particular developments in the arts that he's primarily focused. And, and also, you know, as I think we can get to later, he has this interesting discussion of technology and specifically computer technology, mm-hmm. but he sort of regards that as, um, and, you know, he, he's trying to offer a periodization that goes deeper than some of the ones that had already did, like the idea of an information society mm-hmm. um, or the idea of a post-industrial society, right? Those would be kind of the, the two periodizations that, in a sense, he's he's responding to and trying to offer with postmodernism a, 
a more a more complete model mm-hmm. for understanding what you know he was observing in in the 1980s and so part of the weakness of those um, those models of industrial post-industrial society and information society is that they I mean in the sense of post-industrial right um, probably the obvious point there would be that it doesn't comprehend the whole system of of capital right mm-hmm. because it it's not as if industry is gone it's it's just that in certain um, you know certain advanced nations it's no longer the central driving force of of economic growth, but that's partly because it's been mm-hmm. um, offshored to elsewhere in the world. And then you have this idea of information society, which um, you know is is focused on the rise of the computer, particularly, and other information technologies as and communication mm-hmm. technologies as the kind of you know as to the late twentieth century what the you know the steam engine was to the 19th century or something like that right and so he he sort of um he wants to offer something that that will that will sort of absorb and supersede those kinds of events yeah i mean it is in the tradition of almost like the unified theory of it feels like um when you're moving through it and part of one of the things that he wants to have a perhaps a (laughs) Funnily enough, a deeper account of is the pervasive shallowness yeah. of what's happening and what has happened to depth as a concept. One of the things that he moves towards is Edvard Munch's The Scream, um, probably my favorite painting as a kid, mm-hmm. um, and how that symbolized so much of the modernist project, that there was the monad in a society who was... Uh, constrained and alienated um, and yet there was still this rupture taking place but what he wants to say is that there is no longer this monad the inside outside public private has started to dissolve one way that I kept thinking about it is to think about it as like looking out through a window and obviously you have the window is sort of like this semi-medium between you um, and the outside world, and then it shattering in such a colossal way that you're only left with the fragments of this boundary. And there are a few ways to think about that, I believe. I couldn't help but pull an image from Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, of all places, when the characters are beset upon by a raiding party of Comanches, and some of them have a bunch of uh, pieces of glass. It says... uh, the, the horse's manes were, I think it's like bedight with bits of broken mirror glass reflecting back 1,000 unpieced suns onto the eyes of their enemies, right? And so there becomes this kind of blinding element to postmodernism as well, and that you can see all of these fragments, and they're all incredibly extreme, either in their ability to numb you, surprisingly, or to excite you, um, or to terrify you, but they're not cohesive. And... This is, of course, all constrained to the realm of the visual. And he brings up that within Edvard Munch's The Scream, there is the separation between what it's trying to convey, which is a scream and uh, (laughs) an audio experience um, through a visual medium. And so another way to think about what that's going to look like in the uh, audio visual of it or audio element of it 
is something like uh, a book that comes out contemporaneously with this, which is Don DeLillo's White Noise, which reflects back a thousand unpieced voices onto the reader as uh, advertising, jingles, all of these things are constantly interrupting or interfering with the narrative such that it is difficult to understand sometimes who is speaking or whether anyone who is actually speaking means what they're saying or is just repeating something they've heard somewhere else out of context, right? So that is, I think, that whole experience of culture is his dominant concern throughout this. Yeah, and so, you know, he begins with a series of contrasts and perhaps the most, you know, the simplest and maybe most striking is between um, Van Gogh's pair of boots and um, Warhol's diamond dust shoes. Mm -hmm. So we have these, these two sort of characteristic works of art. The first representing a, a sort of quintessential modernist, sort of high modernist sensibility. And the second representing this moment that seems to represent a, a break with that high, mo or that he wants to argue represents a break rather than just a variation on the, the high modernist moment, mm -hmm. right? And so he says regarding Van Gogh that um, if this image is not to sink to the level of sheer decoration, it requires us to reconstruct some initial situation out of which the finished work emerges. Unless that situation, which has vanished into the past, is somehow mentally restored, the painting will remain an inert object, a reified end product, impossible to grasp as a symbolic act in its own right, as praxis and as production. So, and then he says, um, in Van Gogh, that content, those initial raw materials are to be grasped simply as the whole object world of agricultural misery, of stark rural poverty, and the whole rudimentary human world of backbreaking peasant toil a world reduced to its most, most brutal and menaced, primitive and marginalized state. And then, and then he says, um, the willed and tr violent transformation by Van Gogh of a drab, and, drab peasant object world into the most glorious materialization of pure color and oil paint is to be seen as a utopian gesture, an act of compensation which ends up producing a whole new utopian realm of the senses, or at least of that supreme sense, sight, the visual, the eye, which it now reconstitutes for us as a semi-autonomous space in its own right, a part of some new division of labor in the body of capital, some new fragmentation of the emergent sensorium, which replicates the specializations and divisions of capitalist life at the same time that it seeks in precisely such fragmentation, a desperate utopian compensation. So, you know, this is all pretty dense, but to sum up, what he sees in Van Gogh is on one hand, a a kind of referentiality, right? A kind of preservation of, a, of a, a referential relationship between the work and the world. But at the same time, a kind of transfiguration of this world into a self-contained utopian sort of autonomous space of representation, right? And so mm -hmm. th this is utopian because it seems to, on one hand, attempt to grasp the deep reality of this world and at the same time presents a kind of aesthetic vision of its transformation that would presumably have a correlate if you're a you know marxist of a certain bent in a kind of social and political vision of transformation mm -hmm. or if you have a more let's say 
existentialist romantic vision he offers and doesn't entirely dismiss a heideggerian reading yeah where you understand this transfiguration as uh not a glorifying but a glorying in the sort of dense phenomenological reality of peasant life that is being uh, recreated for the viewer in the romance of the colors um, and representation before you. So these are two possible, or perhaps he, he suffers three, but certainly more than one. And then what he does with diamond dust shoes is he says, you know, uh, th- none of these are possible for this image, right? Um, I would recommend listeners go and take a look at both of these because the difference is stark. Uh, Warhol, of course, uh, began his career drawing shoes for commercial magazines and advertising and things like that. So that it's interesting that that informs and carries over into his art, but the shoes themselves have this kind of shining, what we now would probably call the uh, Jeffrey Coons effect of uh, reflecting back to you. Um, and they're also almost two dimensional on a black background Right. So they really do just look like somebody imprinted shoes on there. Now, there's something of Adorno in his reading of this where he calls to mind the piles of shoes that would be left behind after um, Nazi um, extermination campaigns at the camps. Uh, But also that if that's a referent, it's unclear what its actual status is and is actually sort of canceling any emotional response you could have to that. Right. So there is, if there is atrocity, there is um, no depth of meaning or referent within it. It just happens to be there. And I think that that's part of what he is trying to put his finger on in terms of what makes modern, what makes postmodernism a break with the modernist tradition. If the modernist tradition had this um, idea of high culture and inaugurating a new world through these transformations, whether Marxist or you know, romantic or what have you. Uh, postmodernism is not really interested in that at all. I think it reminds me of in David Foster Wallace's, one of his essays, where the one where he talks about David Lynch, where he says, you know, Quentin Tarantino is interested in showing you a guy getting his ear cut off and David Lynch is interested in the ear. Like postmodernism is like interested in the ear. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's part of the schizophrenic, the Lacanian schizophrenic quality of it is that, these things end up being uh, either within text or visual idiom somewhat disconnected and in free play across the page for each other, which is something like what Derrida brings up in his initial push towards his deconstructionism in his essay on Husserl's reading of geometry. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, I would note at this point that this points to a kind of, um, a kind of tension in the whole in Jameson's whole project, right? Which is that he's he's attempting to characterize this moment um, or this period in which there's a again this this um, shift towards fragmentation um, towards the kind of um, you know we might say in a psychoanalytic way the the kind of um, reemergence of these sort of fragmentary partial objects you know, like the ear, um, which are, which have been kind of deorganized, right? They've been taken out of any kind of life. You know, th- there's a sense in the Van Gogh shoes, right? Of a life world, right? Of a, a totality that they kind of synecdochically stand in for, right? And, and sort of refer us to in some way. Totally. Whereas, 
what what we're seeing is instead this um the you know and this this i think relates to the the schizophrenic quality that you just brought up right that um what we see is instead the kind of um fragmentary presence of these partial objects in the absence of any kind of whole that they can be made to add up to right so there's a there's a detotalization right there's a there's a way that um the the possibility of parts um being integrated into a whole is precisely what's what's being denied right Right. so yeah and and so then the you know the challenge of the project is that its analytical goal is a kind of totalizing one right Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. and and so this is why um you know and this is the importance of this term that jameson is associated with heavily here and is probably one of the most cited terms from this book which is cognitive mapping right that that there's um this problem of cognitive mapping, right? How do you find your way around this um, this fragmented, detotalized reality, where um, you know the 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 feature of all of these um, these cultural products that characterize it is precisely this eschewing of of wholeness or totality, and and a, a kind of um, obscuring of any relationships. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> It's interesting because he does point out that there are certain like modernist reference to this, right? And the first thing I would think of is the introduction to Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, where he suggests that the the surface is the point and the surface is what matters, that that is the uh, true aesthetic medium. And that, of course, to attempt uh, a depth interpretation of the work is to fail to understand its actual thrust. And of course, no one builds on this better than Susan Sontag in Against Interpretation. And to me, uh, I can't help but read him in her wake. I think she writes that in the 60s or 70s. And to me, what she wants, she wants an erotics of literature. But what I think is really happening there, especially when you pair that with her work on photography, is that it's somebody who is really trying to reckon with the phenomenology of the diffusion of images that have broken up everyday life. Yeah. And I think, you know, another thing worth just dwelling on a bit more here is this. um, Yeah. So in terms of the wild reference, you know, there is a sense in, I mean, it's impossible not to all of the discussion flatness or depth in this and not think about just the particular forms of of our the technologies that sort of occupy much of our attention, yeah. right? And this mm-hmm. being, you know, I, I'm thinking not just of whatever um, computers and phones, but you know, the f- think of the flat screen TV, you know, which of course was still decades away when he wrote this. Mm-hmm. But th- the drive to make a flat screen TV almost like a sort of, um, a, you know, completely two-dimensional object, right? And the and the aesthetic of it is to kind of come as close to that as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's fascinating that that is, um, you know, th- that in a way the, te- the, the trend of technological development has been towards precisely this aesthetic of, of flatness and depthlessness, right? And so the, the primary media through which we're apprehending today are, you know, are, are themselves aesthetic objects that um, mm-hmm. that exhibit this kind of cultural trend. Yeah, right? exactly. And so if we're not going to have this sort of depth of text or depth of image, 
Right. I want, okay. So I would mark this transition in another way that I think moves along with it. Right. So at some point he says, we are now in other words, in intertextuality as a deliberate built in feature of the aesthetic effect. And as the operator of a new connotation of past and pseudo historical depth in which the history of aesthetic styles displaces quote unquote real history. Okay. So I would unpack that in perhaps the following way is I would say if we're going to contract the depth of our aesthetic experience, then what that does per his reading of Van Gogh, where you sort of have to fill in the world around the shoes, you're going to get rid of the history that would make that possible, right? Um, I would say that it is the shift from a culture of illusion to a culture of reference. Illusions are more cultivated, they're built into the work. Sometimes they almost function like a cultural idiom or something like that. Um, Shakespeare's relationship to Plutarch is I think a really good explanation of that. Like most of his histories are based on Plutarch's work. They even contain some of the mistakes or fanciful elements of Plutarch's work, which shows how deeply internalized they were. So elements of them allude to the way Plutarch spells things out, but they stand on their own. Um, and you can mark a chain of influence, anxiety of influence, if you will, whatever you want to say about it. In the culture of reference, it is radically horizontalized and that shifts our relationship with the past. We're no longer saying this is a chain of influence and this is how we got here. What we're saying is, and he's right to call it collage, the only option you have is to basically put these things all on the same plane and resort them into different combinations. Now, of course, that's going to greatly affect your ability to, again, cognitively map how you got there. You were eliminating parts of frankly, the enlightenment project of history, but even more radically, perhaps it would be difficult to even have it the ancients appreciation of the birth, growth, death cycle of history that's forwarded by the Roman writers or by Thucydides himself. Yeah, and I think, I mean, another interesting, and we haven't gotten into this yet, but um, the Wells Fargo court building that he discusses yeah. um, that he points out is, um, you know, it can be experienced physically. And this depthlessness is not merely metaphorical. It can be experienced physically and literally by anyone who mounting what used to be Raymond Chandler's Bunker Hill from the great Chicano markets on Broadway and 4th Street in downtown Los Angeles suddenly confronts the great freestanding wall of Wells Fargo Court, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, a surface which seems to be unsupported by any volume or whose putative volume is ocularly quite undecidable. This great sheet of windows with its gravity-defying two-dimensionality momentarily transforms the solid ground on which we stand into the contents of a stereopticon, pasteboard shapes profiling themselves here and there around us. Um, the visual effect is the same from all sides. So, you know, it, it's, it's almost as if this building is sort of allegorizing the... <laughs> the larger sort of cultural predicament is a sort of emanation of. Um, and the shift from the subject to space, right? The, the, yeah. the meme we have was like bodies and spaces, right? Right. And it's like, you know, where did that come from? What's going on? I mean, I'm sure your listeners are copped out of that if they're listening to a podcast called Outsider Theory at all, but it's worth dwelling on as if, okay, we don't have depth interpretation, if we don't have uh, historical narrative as something that can help these things cohere, then we are going to be interested in bodies and spaces. In other words, a type of like bare life perhaps, and the architectural situation that is wrapped around that and contextualizes it. 
but that's different than the inside outside of Mook's scream, for example, because the body can be seen as relatively inert and the space always feels ambiguous. In fact, I was very surprised that he pulled from Michael Hare's dispatches, yeah. probably one of my favorite books. And he has a nice uh, quote from it where he talks about um, the transit of helicopter to helicopter of the war machine of the Vietnam war being one of movement where you almost forget the context and the point of what you're doing. This is pulled from the first, like maybe 10 pages of the book. I want to say um, it's really good, but to be honest, I had a part, if you'd be willing to indulge me, I wanted to read from illumination rounds, probably the standout essay and the work that's just from it's um, brief little opening here that I think captures the situation of body space deterritorialization is I think we are going to come to call this um, and uh, the problem of the postmodern war. And I think this is also like a good explanation of the difficulty of the postmodern subject, which is not to say that life is war, but to say that the same epistemological and problems of understanding exist in this war as they do in our everyday life and are distilled well here. So I'll just start. We were all strapped into the seats of the Chinook, 50 of us, and something, someone was hitting it from the outside with an enormous hammer. How do they do that, I thought. We're a thousand feet in the air. But it had to be that, over and over, shaking the helicopter, making it dip and turn in a horrible out-of-control motion that took me in the stomach. I had to laugh, it was so exciting. It was the thing I had wanted, almost what I had wanted except for that wrenching, resonant metal echo. I could hear it even above the noise of the rotor blades. And they were going to fix that. I knew they would make it stop. They had to. It was going to make me sick. They were all replacements going in to mop up after the big battles on Hills 875 and 876, the battles that had already taken on the name of one great battle, the Battle of Dak To. And I was new, brand new, three days in country, embarrassed about my boots because they were so new. And across from me, 10 feet away, a boy tried to jump out of the straps and then jerked forward and hung there, his rifle barrel caught in the red plastic webbing of the seat back. As the chopper rose again and turned, his weight went back hard against the webbing in a dark spot the size of a baby's hand showed in the center of his fatigue jacket, and it grew. I knew what it was, but not really. It got up to his armpits and then started down his sleeves and up over his shoulders at the same time. It went all across his waist and down his legs, covering the canvas on his boots until they were dark like everything else he wore, and it was running in slow, heavy drops off of his fingertips. I thought I could hear the drops hitting the metal strip on the chopper floor. Hey, oh, but this isn't anything at all. It's not real. It's just some thing they're going through that isn't real. Out of the door gunners, one of the door gunners was heaped on the floor like a cloth dummy. His hand had the bloody raw look of a pound of liver fresh from the butcher paper. We touched down on the same LZ we had just left a few minutes before, but I didn't know it until one of the guys shook my shoulder and I couldn't stand up. All I could feel of my legs was their shaking, and the guy thought I'd been hit and helped me up. The chopper had taken eight hits. There was shattered plastic all over the floor, a dying pilot up front, and the boy was hanging forward in the straps again. He was dead, but not. I knew, really dead. It took me a month to lose that feeling of being a spectator to something that was part game, part show. That first afternoon before I'd boarded the Chinook, a black sergeant tried to keep me from going. He told me I was too new to go near the kind of shit they were throwing around up in those hills. You a reporter, he'd ask. And I'd said, no, a writer. 
dumbass and pompous, and he'd laughed and said, careful, you can't use no eraser where you want to go. He pointed to the bodies of all the dead Americans lined in two long rows near the chopper pad, so many they could not even cover all of them decently. But they were not real then and taught me nothing. The Chinook had come in, blowing my helmet off, and I grabbed it up and joined the replacements waiting to board. Okay, man, the sergeant said. You gotta go, you gotta go. All I can say is, I hope you can clean a wound. I mean, we see even in that the schizophrenic quality that he's talking about. The the butcher paper, the liver pulled just from the butcher paper, almost doesn't even serve as a metaphor in some way, but uh, serves to cohere how decontextualized everything is in a moment where a chopper is spinning out of control and even the center of gravity is disjointed, right? That's why the boy's body is doing that weird thing within the chopper itself. And I think that that is very much like the same phenomenological cultural experience of what it was like as the media started to speed up and become more dominant. Just as sort of a tangent, this makes me think of something else, which is that, um, you know, last year I wrote about this Jill Lepore book about this um, Simulmatics Corporation. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. this um, early sort of pioneering um, data analytics and sort of um, data-driven prediction company. But one of the strangest and most disturbing parts of the book, which... I would think of as almost like the flip side of that, what you just read is about their involvement in Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. How basically they were contracted by um, Robert McNamara, Naturally. of course, <laughs> to, you know, essentially attempt to produce a simulation of the war, right? Mm-hmm. So that... <clears throat> Essentially, um, for, you know, and this is reasonably well known about uh, that McNamara's whole idea was sort of that you could calculate how many inputs you needed in order to, you know, produce the right outputs. Um, But, you know, what's interesting about this and is somewhat more forgotten is, you know, they actually hired this company to go and, you know, they were doing surveys. So they were going around and, you know, they were going around to villages and trying to carry out these surveys of people to try to determine the level of their likelihood to, you know, support the Viet Cong or the U.S. and, um, you know, make predictions about, you know, what would happen in certain regions based on things like that. And, you know, essentially use use these surveys to construct these um, these, ma- you know, essentially like a series of sort of binary questions that could then be used to sort of create a mathematical model of like what would happen in this village given certain inputs. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so it's, you know, there's something weird about that in relation to what you were just reading because it's almost like from the opposite end, this, this weird way that sort of the elites and power itself is, um, is kind of lost in its own, this strange sort of labyrinth that it's constructed. Um, you know, and I think, again, this isn't that new of a sort of way of understanding like McNamara's sort of creating this, but, you know, kind of getting lost in this bizarre labyrinth of his own construction, right? Mm-hmm. Where he, he, he can't find the center anymore. Um, but what's, but what's interesting about that is that there you have this idea that Vietnam on one hand is this, you know, unbelievably brutal and visceral experience but on the other hand is this kind of you know it's the first simulated war right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's the first war that's on one level being apprehended as pure as a sort of purely numerical construct (laughs) 
Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it deals in you know in Yasha Levine's uh, Surveillance Valley. He goes into the early iterations of the internet that are trotted out for this engagement. I mean, so much of our world can be explained by, I think, the Forgotten War, Korea, uh, to begin with, and then Vietnam as sort of like the culmination of the mistakes and horrific deeds that were either not learned from or doubled down on once we got to Vietnam. And as I'm reading Jameson, I'm starting to sense some differences between what he's describing and where we're living now, right? He's interested in this death of affect that we've already talked about. Um, and he's also interested in the computer screen. We've already talked about that. You know, what I want to say is that I think affect is back. I think affect is actually the primary medium through which all of the flatness we experience goes through. And he wants to say that it's purged to either just complete excitement or something like that basically intense states that are themselves absent of narrative. But I think something different has happened now. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I know that you've written that thing on metamodernism and then our experiences, I think, you know, I've talked about this. I mean, we opened with a, you know, referring to my essay on lecture porn um, is that that part of postmodernity, which also brought with it a type of whimsy, like I'm thinking of the talking heads here and like the big suit and stop making sense you know, uh, is that that really feels over. There's sort of like a high seriousness that has come with everything. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, there's the, there's a high seriousness and then there's kind of the, it's, it's a counterpart and antagonist, right. Which is this kind of, um, you know, this, this continuation of this mode of sort of ludic irony, which, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, which, and, and this kind of weird gleefulness. Um, right. Like which, the Tim Faust, like a uh, skateboarding dog, abortions are rad thing. I'm not going to like, obviously stance yeah. on that only to say that it is like aesthetically in that type of like, um, I would say fl- the flaunting insouciance. Yeah. Yeah. So, right, he says this thing about, um, you know, he says, this is not to say the cultural products of the postmodern era are enti- utterly devoid of feeling, but rather the feelings, which it may be better and more accurate following Leotard to call intensities, are now free-floating and impersonal and tend to be dominated by a peculiar kind of euphoria, a matter mm-hmm. to which we will want to return later on. So, yeah, so I think um, the euphoria, I would associate, I mean, so... <laughs> I think there was a kind of anesthetizing quality of media that um, the dominant modes of media today are actually not anesthetizing, right? So I think this mm-hmm. is, um, you know, and, and this was very explicit in in sort of internet utopianism, right? That like, you know, TV is just this anesthetizing stream that's kind of, bomb- you know, that you're bombarded with mm-hmm. that you know, kind of shuts you off and makes you this sort of affectless. Um, whereas you interact whereas, with the, whereas internet. the internet, whereas the internet solicits your mm-hmm. active involvement. Right. And so I would say that shift towards a kind of intensified affect, although also a kind of shifting and constantly shifting and sort of incoherent, um, you know, kind of sequence. I mean, again, I think it is this fragmentation, right. Where it's this, it's the sequence of affective states Right. Where, I mean, just think of like the timeline where you have, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some horror, you know, you have, you know, just go through your timeline. You have, you know, some earnest posting, you know, (laughs) people denouncing, you know, some lecture porn. 
and then you have some goofy bullshit and then you have something in between you know so you have this kind of um yeah i mean i think about the sequence of 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 these intensities which have no you know which don't add up to anything and which which take us through this and and we ourselves may you know if if you look at our contributions to the discourse across a given day they may fluctuate in in ways that mimic what we're totally what we're receiving so i think that's you know, there is on one hand this kind of solicitation, which produces this mode of sort of intensified affect, you know, which which is often like outrage, right? I mean, that's probably the most um, the most obvious instance mm-hmm. of it, right? And mm-hmm. and I mean, I would assu- you know, going somewhat off track here from Jameson, I would also associate this this with the sort of you know the the reawakening of the kind of scapegoating mob, right? As the as the primary driving force of discourse, right? Where you, you have this, um, this contagious affect that, um, you know, passes from person to person and, and multiplies exponentially and sort of cascades across particular formations of, of users. And then that's, that's kind of the way that certain things just are done, right? Because that's, Mm. that's what the platforms activate. Um, and, you know, my sense is that was not, <laughs> that was sort of a, a, a weird discovery that we made somewhere around 10 years ago, right? Um, yeah, but I think I would like to say that I think some of the antecedents happened right at, so I was, spoiler alert, like I was researching for an episode we're doing tomorrow, um, and we're talking about the episode I think is going to be called like um, the Imperial Vampire Castle and its fixed ideas. And we're primarily looking at, of course, Fisher's exiting the vampire's castle and Joan Didion's fixed ideas, her standalone essay on American culture right after nine 11. And I think you can really see that there is this sort of telos that happens after nine 11 where that scapegoating and that infantilization and um, an affective reflattening and repurposing of history really becomes how we start to understand ourselves within our highly mediatized society. And you're right that I think there is this discovery around 2010 when the social media platforms stop being a thing the kids are doing and start to be a thing where professional and political life happens in these demi-private realms of public experience. Another thing I think is kind of interesting is, you know, in, in terms of this anesthetizing media phenomenon, I mean, I think it's it's worth comparing the images of um, the, the, you know, the, when we wanted to imagine, you know, if the oversimplified sort of Neil Postman critique of television, you know, you have these kinds of anesthetized people on a couch whose eyes are sort of glazed over, um, right. And they're, they're sort of the, the inhabitants of this flat, depthless sort of schizoid affect that, that Jameson is describing, right. In the, in the most, you know, that that's kind of the most popular, well-known image of that that kind of a description but then um what what do we have today that's equivalent to that well it's like the teenager whose eyes are sort of in a way seem to be similarly glazed over looking at their phone right but there's a trick there which is they're actually hyperactive but where are they hyperactive well they're their thumbs and fingers right that's that's where the action is actually and and their inner state i would say right right so but there's a experience experience but but what's strange there is, you know, if we think about the, the you know, in a sort of McLuhanite way, if we think about the the sort of 
um, the directness of the kind of visual, you know, and we, we might think of like video drum here, right? The sort, the sort of seeming vis- visceral directness of visual media. Right? Um, you know, we think of like the voice and the the eyes as most direct and immediate um, means of kind of aesthetic response, right? Um, whereas whereas text is historically this much slower. Um, Mm-hmm. realm right where where these kinds of um these kinds of um affective feedback loops are produced by stimuli and generate certain um responses are historically and you know if you think of like related media theorists right like text writing is a medium that kind of slows that whole process down right and it it's it's it, it's what produces this kind of um you know what like uh, Kahneman and some psychologists call like that, or it's, it's related to this kind of um, system too, right? This idea of like Mm. a a slower, a slower mode of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, when we think about these teenagers, just like, you know, getting tendonitis in their hands from like just constantly rapid texting all day. Right. It seems as if text has become, has, has become something else, right. In relation to the media. I remember actually having that, that feeling when I was a teenager. I mean, before any of this happened, uh, dimly, dimly, of course, because I was a teen, right? Like one of those insights you have into the world you're living in that seem to exist without language because you don't have it when you're that age. But I was thinking about, um, I was on AOL Instant Messenger and I thought about everyone I was, inter- I was interacting with more than one person, right? And then I thought about how everyone I was interacting with was also probably also interacting with more than one person. And then I was, I was sort of, you know, you grow it out from there. Right. And I was like, this has got to be more text than has ever been in the world. Right. And I didn't really know what to do with that realization, but I think that that speaks to what you're talking about as an early iteration of the moment we're in now. Well, and that, I guess in a somewhat, different way if we think about what you just said i mean that kind of leads us to this whole issue of the sublime right because if you're mm-hmm. you're contemplating that vast exponentially expanding body of text right um you know you can think of like borges's um library right the total library <laughs> yeah. yeah um so where you know you can actually li- you know where where there's sort of this combinatory idea that you know if you, I mean, it's it's related to the sort of you know if it, that whole idea of like if you get a monkey to type for however long, you know, eventually they'll produce some Shakespeare or whatever. Yeah, you'll get Richard so it's the like, Third. Yeah. So it's it's you know that's kind of the Borgesian library, right? That that it, but it's but it's that synchronically rather than, the monkey mm-hmm. is the diachronic ver- um, that unfolds in time. The Borges version is is actually much more like the Jamesonian. Um, you know, kind of synchronic simultaneity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but where it's it is schizophrenized because the librarian is mostly just looking at nonsense, right? The, the librarian spent in this in the Library of Babel like, spends his whole career just um, sort of poring over texts with not you know full of nonsense, just fragmentary random letters, random words occasionally, and then you know once in a while a phrase. Um, and so, so this is one version of this kind of postmodern sublime that that Jameson is is trying to characterize here. And you know, part of what's important about it is that it's a so it's it's to be distinguished from this sort of romantic and modernist sublime, specifically because the romantic and modernist sublime still had um, 
the relationship to nature in which nature is the sort of absolute other, right? And so the the sort of Burkean Kantian sublime is this nature in its state of overwhelming force, power, and vastness, right? That that exceeds the capacities of the the human fancy or imagination, right? But <clears throat> that for Kant is indicative of um, that is also indicative of the sort of um, infinite capacity of the human soul, right? Because it um, be, because it's its ability to um, perceive the reality of that vastness without um, sort of simply giving up, or mm-hmm. um, is is an indication of the sort of human intellectual vocation in a sense, right? So so the so the those are the but but in those in those cases the sublime is is fundamentally is is the other of humanity in the sense that it's it's nature right yeah in in, mm-hmm. in the sense that nature exceeds humanity um and is beyond humanity's capacity to fully comprehend or control right so the postmodern sublime on the other hand is you know nature has been left um you know it's i mean he He's not in the stage of talking about the Anthropocene. It's essentially that idea, right? Yeah. The nature, nature is, nature is a mirror. Um, of kind man's of will. Yeah. What's that? It's almost like a mirror of the will of humanity or, or what have you. And that it no longer offers that type of separation to us. Yeah. It is a fragment among fragments. It is another referent to human life rather than something that stands over and against it and provides it meaning through any type of containment. Right. And I mean, I think, you know, part of what's interesting about this is that, you know, the sort of great modernizing um, impetus of, say, American culture, right, in the period of the railroads and industrialization and so on was, you know, the the dominant ideology of the sort of industrialist class, for example, not, you know, we need to conquer and destroy nature, so as to subjugate it to human, um, the human will is in fact, we need to cultivate um, the natural sublime, right? So we mm-hmm. need to set aside parks like Yosemite, you know, and this is why like the American Museum of Natural History was, you know, founded by all of these and, and supported by all of the American elites who were obsessed with preserving wilderness, right? Um, and, and saw it, you know, the loss and the, the danger posed to wilderness as, as an immense problem even though they were also still like going and hunting mountain gorillas and things like that and elephants. Right. Um, with, I mean, with I Teddy think Roosevelt, but, <laughs> you know, but, but the point is there was a kind of complementarity between the appreciation of the natural sublime and the striving towards um, a, a kind of, you know, quintessentially modern kind of Promethean vision of human greatness, right. That, that those were seen as, and I mean, we're even kind of explicitly understood as, as complimentary. Right. I mean, they fell under this rubric that was uh, Abrahamic, yeah. right? That had to do with both human flourishing, you know, be fruitful and multiply, but also in the hierarchy that gets laid out in the book and of so, Genesis, mm-hmm. right? Which is basically man as steward of God's kingdom on earth, um, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, so basically um, the point would be if we go back to that, moments right of of sort of high modernism in the context of of sort of uh you know essentially utopian even when not 
I mean, you can see it as particularly utopian in its kind of communist version, but you know, there, there was a kind of utopianism even to Absolutely. The, the American yeah. um, industrialist version of that. But anyway, the point was the na- that nature still had to stand as the absolute other, right? It had to be, um, it had to be in some sense sort of worshipped as that uh, and, and was by many of these figures. I mean, I think, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is a fascinating figure in that regard. But, um, but then, you know, so again, so that's the sublime and its kind of role in that prior development. And then Jameson says, the other of our society is no longer nature at all as it was in pre-capitalist societies, but something else which we must now identify. Um, and then he says, I'm anxious that this other thing not over hastily be grasped as technology per se since I will want us to want to show that technology is here a figure for something else. So there's this kind of, um, in, in this essay, there's this kind of acting out of the problem of the sublime, which is that he can't quite figure out how to name the thing that he's Mm -hmm. trying to characterize, which goes back to this point I brought up earlier, where he's, he's trying to grasp the totality of this, um, this cultural logic that is precisely resistant to totalization, right? That is, is precisely a drive towards fragmentation and sort of schizophrenic um, partial object, you know, profusion of partial objects. So he's, he's sort of enacting this problem in this passage, right? Because he's saying, well, it's no longer nature. And then the simple version of the, of the, um, you know, the point that you brought up about, you know, instant messenger would be like, you know, the sublime has now become something that we produce, right? Through our every, I mean, even just through our everyday use, quotidian use of mm-hmm. technology. But he he wants to say that it's not as simple as that. But then at the same time, he's sort of being a little bit like, okay, I don't, it is sort of technology, but it's also not, right? <laughs> right, it's almost like- is actually a figure for something else. Right, I think he's gesturing towards, but he can't say this either because this indeed is like, would be indebted to like modernist phenomenologists, but it is a sort of like life world that he's trying to articulate. What is this emergent life world that he's trying to periodize probably like in the middle of its unfolding, if we're going to be like generous to ourselves and say that we have moved out of post-modernity into whatever thing we're living through now, whether it is like a, uh, a new opportunity or an old hell is hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. Um, And, but yeah, part of it is that because of the schizophrenia he describes, you can't really get a handle on it, right? Like, I kept thinking about this. I kept, I kept thinking about this, right? It's in one, I think it's in the second of Frederick Douglass's autobiographies. And there's this moment where he's describing when he like sees the bay near where he's living as a slave for the first time and sees all of these ships in the bay. It describes their white sails. And it's this, it becomes like this metaphor for his first glimpse at what freedom might mean, which is very telling, right? Because he taught himself to read by looking at the sides of ships and slowly putting together what the words meant, right? Like you see how intermeshed these things are. And the fact that that's a moment of figurative language implies that there's a depth to that experience. And that also there's a chain of history, right? He learns rhetoric by reading the early 17th century speeches from the English levelers. He risked life and limb to read Cicero, right? Um, This is the type of guy he was. And then I thought about like some of the metaphors I hear in like uh, um, pop music or whatever today. And I don't want to make this like, I'm not marking um, 
actually, I don't give a shit if this is read as reactionary or not. I'm not going to apologize for it. Like you'll see something where it's like, um, I watched like wrist and you're like, okay, yeah, I get that there are more than two meanings for like watch can be both a verb and a noun, but like that simile doesn't really make anything more clear. It is really just the interplay of surfaces and it's remarked upon as clever and that that is a type of height of quality for some of what passes for, um, I suppose, like interesting major aesthetic experiences now. And I guess where I'm going with this is that in the same way that we can read in Wild in uh, some of these other writers' uh, preemptory notes of postmodernity, we can in postmodernity feel uh, preemptory notes of what we're living in now, whether it's metamodernity or something else, right? And that the interplay of surfaces is still something we're going to deal with. But rather than it being a fragmented new, which of course abolished newness as general, um, we're living with uh, like uh, a weird permanent past that always keeps being the present somehow. I don't know if that fully makes sense, but that's how it feels to me. And what marks what I've lived through versus what um, I think Jameson's describing here. Yeah. Um, I think I wanted to come back to a passage that's sort of relevant to that. Yeah, I was curious what you thought about... Okay, here we go. Um, I was curious what you thought about this passage. Uh, that stupend- the stupendous proliferation of social codes today into professional and disciplinary jargons, but also into the badges of affirmation of ethnic, gender, race, religious, and class factional adhesion is also a political phenomenon. The problem as the problem of micropolitics sufficiently demonstrates. If the ideas of a ruling class were once the dominant or hegemonic ideology of bourgeois society, the advanced capitalist countries today are now a field of stylistic and discursive heterogeneity without a norm. Faceless masters continue to inflect the economic strategies which constrain our existences, but they no longer need to impose their speech or are henceforth unable to. And the post-literacy of the late capitalist world reflects not only the absence of any great collective project, but also the unavailability of the older national language itself. Mm. So that seems somewhat relevant to your Yeah, Yeah, it was funny. I mean, Uh, (laughs) I couldn't help but think of like uh, John and I and our like futile attempt to create like an American cultural society within our podcast where we do our American canon series and talk about this very problem at length because I refuse to give up on it. And maybe that's just me being um, silly at this point. But um, if there is a rupture between the postmodern and now, maybe it is one where tr- uh, tradition can be remembered, not as just an element of conservation, but an element of critique as well. But I would say that he's bang on on this and really uh, catches a lot of what's coming down the pike. You know, I mean, I think it's hard not to see sort of the Disney thing that Chris Rufo reported on where, uh, I mean, I, I think he exposed so much of their like race sensitivity training that they nuked the project and are no longer doing it because it got them such bad press. Um, but the fact that that and like the woke CIA videos and stuff like that show how dominant that this has become. And that um, it got me really thinking about the fact that uh, America has never really been a nation state in the European sense. What anybody might say about it, it has never been truly at its core about ethnicity or blood. It has always been, and to me, this is still the great hope of being an American 
and living here. And one of the things that I insist is important at its emancipatory core is that it is a republic. We commune within the law together. Outside of that, we are allowed to live in a remarkable, unprecedented in the world. Empires, by the way, are always cosmopolitan. But um, ours has an unprecedented level of diversity, I would say. Um, And the Republic structure makes that possible, right? But then that brings in all sorts of problems that make it easy to weaken the idea of America as a nation state as it expands as an empire, creates multinational capital, which is exactly specifically what Jameson is looking at here. And I think it makes it incredibly, incredibly vulnerable to the sorts of postmodern dissolution and ultra fragmentation. And we could even say factionalism that passes from micropolitics and what Jameson is talking about here. And that's not to say I would prefer that we construct out of what who would know an ethnic understanding of America, but rather that uh, nothing old or new will really do right now. And we have to think about ourselves in a much different way. And I'm using the old technique of trying to create a canon or tradition out of that with John as a way to characterize this thing as a fraught relationship that has played out over time through many different iterations. It has been indeed a long tortured reality and conversation about what it's going to mean for enlightenment bourgeois freedom to unfold. There are many contradictions within that and many horrors as well. And I think if I have like any hope in the work I do now being important, it is that like the only way out of this that I understand is that there is some sort of appreciation for the idea of posterity. Because one of the things that Jameson doesn't really get on is what's going to happen to the future, the idea of the future here. And it's interesting. That's almost like uh, uh, an omission of the repressed, um, as he's so interested in the return of the repressed here, is that uh, somebody who probably grew up in so much of the modernist idiom, he, he himself could not fully contend with the idea that we might be dealing with the death of the future as a concept that we have here. So I would say that like uh, part of what we have to do is, is, is return <laughs> with a V uh, yeah. in some way, but then also that, 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 that obviously won't do, that's not enough. That becomes like um, one of the, the things that he talks about, the stereotypical past that becomes the nostalgia mode. I kept thinking about the difference between The Godfather 2, where it's mm. sort of like, you know, the flashback scenes with Robert De Niro and sort of like the very sepia-toned, idealized version of the immigrant experience in America. And then what I thought I think is the great counterpoint to that, which is Scorsese's Gangs of New York, where at the end of that movie, it doesn't matter that any of that happened. It all gets swept up in a larger national conflict and their graves are totally forgotten as the city becomes absolutely unrecognizable, you know? Uh, so... I don't know if any of that made sense, but it was all on my yeah, mind yeah. when I was there um, reading that passage you just read a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. He does, you know, in his later, he Jameson goes on to write this book about science fiction where he does kind of turn to this question of the future, but um, we won't, won't get into that now. Um, you know, it's clear, you know, you mentioned Fisher before. Um, you know, it's clear that at least implicit here is some sense of the, slow cancellation of the future um that that you know he doesn't um he doesn't directly make this case but it's it's kind of implicit right in the 
in the basic um in the basic temporality he's identifying with this this um this moment and this logic that that there is a kind of um you know there's no evolution right it's there's an eternal present and there's mm-hmm. a and the past is um is sort of hollowed out and and reduced to a set of and the, and that the present itself can you know and and he brings up this idea which you know i think became i mean and some have written about this but you know i, I think became nicely embodied when um you know instagram and other apps started adding these photo filters where you can make your photos mm-hmm. look like you know faded polaroids and so on right that yeah. the, the 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 present in, can instantly become an an object of nostalgia right um, mm-hmm. and i talked about this on my episode with biz sherbert in terms of fashion trends right love that, that episode love biz's um, podcast yeah. huge <laughs> Fed alumni yeah, fan yeah, yeah, yeah. any of yeah. you ladies are listening please yeah. keep going i love it so yeah. much <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, yeah, that, so we were talking there about this whole phenomenon, right. Of, and, and it's interesting. It was, I was interested to see Jameson um, bringing partly in relation to um, the film body heat from, yeah, that was um, surprising with, with William Hurt, um, which he, you know, he identifies as a kind of um, as a kind of remake of uh, double indemnity, but he, he sort of presents that as a, a sort of version of this um, present, right? Mm-hmm. Right. At least the, the aesthetic of it, you know. Right, where... and yeah, it does have this very old timey and also like antebellum feel to it, which yeah. is you know it takes place in in Florida, um, and that's a very interesting element of that. And that with his discussion of the um, Bonaventure uh, Western Hotel at the end being completely made of glass, you know, if it weren't a pandemic and I had had the time, I would have just driven over there. <laughs> like, yeah, taking well, the elevator and walked around in the lobby. But um, I've seen it, you know, from that in person, which really changes things. And I kept thinking about um, Michael Mann's Manhunter and then Heat, which to me, I think he was, for me, one of the cinematographers, like one of the directors that most fully understood that LA aesthetic and what that postmodern quality really felt like. There's a moment where... Um, the the lead the protagonist in Manhunter has this interaction with um, Hannibal Lecter and realizes something and you watch him sprint down the stairs of this of course totally glass reflective weird postmodern institution that he's in I really wonder where they shot that and it is to me like the body and spaces drama of that thriller You know, there's always this blue quality towards it that feels very alienating, very cold. It's no surprise to me that Fisher is also very interested in the movie Heat itself as the neoliberal description of the subject and the famous tete-a-tete between Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. Yeah. By the way, yeah, it's... um... I don't know. I feel like I should come to LA and we can do like a field trip just to look at the, we can, so, you know, go to, go to the Bonaventure, go to the Wells yeah, Fargo building. Totally. We should. Uh, yeah. If, if you're ever we could do here, a, We could that. do a follow up and make a little, um, you know, little video essay or something. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. If you come out here, yeah. I'm game. We'll make yeah. it happen. Cool. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, just a final comment that I think is kind of interesting here is that you know, a lot of the original sort of postmodern theorizing, I mean, he, he goes into it more elsewhere in the book, but um, is actually kind of these Europeans who become fascinated with the, with post-war America, right? And, mm-hmm. and specifically in a way sort of post, you know, 
post-industrial sort of post-60s America, right? Um, and they become fascinated with California, Southern California particularly. Um, and so you have Baudrillard, you have Derrida. I mean, all of these people um, are crucially shaped by their visit to the U.S. And in a sense, it would seem that their theoretical project is sort of inspired by, I mean, this is kind of going back to your contrast between the American Republic and the European nation state. Mm-hmm. Um, but but is really inspired by their attempts to, I mean, you know, that that they're critics of the European nation state mm-hmm. in, in one sense and and of its sort of modern, you know, its sort of high modernist iteration, you know, as embodied in the kind of post-war welfare state. Mm-hmm. And and it's sort of um, you know, it's sort of compromise utopianism. Yeah. And so they're they're critics of this. And so in a sense, what's interesting, even though they're you know, generally regarded within the U.S. as these kind of enemy ideological invaders um, by the sort of center and right. They're they're actually extremely sympathetic to kind of aesthetically kind of seduced by um, the the sort of um, post you know emergent postmodern American landscape that they that they um, are exposed to, and they kind of use it as a uh, at least an inspiration, right, for for their projects, right? And, you know, you have Derrida famously saying that um, America is deconstruction, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what what I'm getting to here is that, on the other hand, you have Jameson, an American, who's, you know, not framing this necessarily explicitly as about American cult per se, right? And that's an interesting note about this yes, project. Yes. He's not He's not framing it as a critique of contemporary American culture, right? He's framing it as late capital, you know, the culture of late capitalism. So presumably that would encompass the entire advanced, you know, industrialized mm-hmm. world. And but, to his credit to that end, he does pull in from contemporaneous French authors to make that right. point. Yeah, totally. So, but anyway, my only point here is nevertheless, the, the center of gravity here is obviously American in terms of the cultural materials that he's yes. and, and is in fact, LA, I would say it's, um, you know, it's, it's really the site of these, these buildings that are between them sort of representative of two crucial dimensions of this configuration. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm getting at here is that it's interesting to see somebody who at, in this time or slightly after you had these French um, thinkers coming to America and really in some way being inspired to, um, you know, gain a new perspective on their um, cultural traditions and sort of European societies and cultures um, from the perspective of this kind of weird fragmentary kind of um, superficial sort of um, quotidian surrealism of (laughs) sort of um, late post-war United States that on the other hand, you have Jameson, who's kind of turning back to essentially the Frankfurt School, you know, who are themselves, of course, um, exiles in Southern California for a the while. The Grand Hotel Abyss. Um, yeah, yes. but, but, you know, they, um, he's turning back to the Frankfurt School, who had a, you know, opposite response to <laughs> the American <laughs> reality they witnessed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're much more, even, you know, despite their kind of, I mean, I mean, we're much more committed to modernist utopianism in some in some version, right? At least mm-hmm. aesthetic utopian. Um, and so, you know, th- there's an odd um, contrast here, I would say, between these these French 
sort of postmodernists, quote unquote, who who are sort of using America to critique Europe. Mm-hmm. And Jameson's project, which is in a sense the opposite, right? He's he's trying to return to resources offered by this high modernist Marxian mode of cultural analysis to make sense of what's fundamentally an American cultural life. Even even when it's not overtly American, it's still, you know, inflected by the dominant dominant position of American empire. Mm-hmm. Totally. So I don't know, there's something something odd about that. Um, maybe I'm making it too neat, but you know, whatever. No, that does strike <laughs> me as I'm going through. One of the things that's been, I've thought about this a lot, especially over the past year, but even before that, is... This isn't a critique of Jameson. I don't think I can level it at him. Um, He's too thoughtful. But one of the things that I notice about contemporary left thinkers is that they're um, rightfully concerned about the footprint of American empire, uh, as I think anyone should be. (laughs) Um, However, they seem to not fully understand what empire means and fully understand what soft power means and assume their radical status as radicals on the world stage rather than as avant-garde HR generators for the U S empire, you know, so that they can continue to cast themselves as these good guys in the fight and solidarity with all these people, despite the fact that like every left movement in this country is like deeply provincial, you know, America's always been that way. And that's to say, it's like, we don't really have an understanding of ourselves as a nation and how we're projected outward in the world. Um, because we've always remained a provincial empire. It's a contradiction in terms, but it was never our tradition to keep our military after a war. World War II was the exception, and Korea is what solidified it. And American gunboats really made that multinational capitalism possible, you know, um, that what he's talking about here. And, you know, there's a song I haven't been able to stop thinking of, right? I want to talk about uh, for a second. This will be my last thing. The thing that I think is going to change is that I really don't believe that we're going to be living in a unipolar world anymore. And it will be harder to act on or to assume some of the things that we learn from Jameson here as things start to shift. And the song that I keep thinking about is by the Chinese hip hop group, The Higher Brothers, and it's called Made in China. And the whole song is about how everything is made in China. The bag your girl wears, made in China, you know, the swag made in China, you know, all of these things. And I remember writing a little essay on this in a newsletter around that time that Americans are especially left and right, totally unprepared for a non-unipolar world. Culturally, we will have no medium through which we can fully understand that, that as it unfolds. We will always be a step behind if it continues to unfold because we've never really properly reckoned within ourselves our status in the world. Yeah, and I would say, you know, not not necessarily in an optimistic way, but I mean, I, I reviewed this book by Niall Ferguson about the history of disasters. Oh yeah, how um, was that? I mean, I was I, I liked it better than I expected to because I find him, you know, not <laughs> distasteful. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not a great fan, but um, you know, it's I mean, it it was it was more measured and. Um, less kind of hot takey than I expected. It ha- it did make some interesting points, but, um, you know, in the end, it really comes across as kind of a, uh, you know, it, it offers a relatively straightforward kind of re- re- revived neocon yeah. um, sensibility. 
which is consistent with his pre, you know, with where yeah, he's I was about to say that all the time, right? which confirming his much, priors left but, and right. But, but which is pretty much that, um, you know, the lesson of COVID is that we have this sclerotic, um, you know, um, government and also society that's simply un- unwilling and incapable of, of responding effectively to crises. And, you know, fundamentally that the societies that, that did respond reasonably well are, are largely ones that have a clear sense of are, you know, engaged in serious geopolitical rivalries that pose existential, right? Right. It's the so, so, Schmidtian vitalism type. Yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah. And so Ferguson's take is that, you know, the, um, the sort of silver lining of all of this, that the fact that we are in a, I mean, he claims we are already in a cold war with China, you know, whether we like it or not, and that China declared it. And so, <laughs> okay, you know, buddy. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but I guess, you know, the, the, so obviously like, you know, I, I was um, critical of this, uh, this part of the book, but I think it does point to something that I think is probably a good way to finish, which is that part of what we're saying, I would say is, is incomplete about Jameson or, or that, that needs to be brought up to date. It, it does kind of have, I mean, it's written still during the cold war, right. Mm-hmm. But it still does have a, a it, it has an assumption behind it of, um, you know, continued American imperial dominance. And yes. it, you know, it, it was written in such a way that it, you know, even though the Soviet union still existed, um, it, it was written in such a way that it could be read in the 90s without any sense of discontinuity, right? It, it could, like, <clears throat> you know, the, the um, Jameson's postmodernism book could be read as an end of history. Right? Yes, yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, when you have, I would say clearly not, I mean, I would say even more on the, <laughs> in the Biden administration among the, I mean, to the extent that the Democrats have sort of absorbed the neocons, you know, yeah, this is to be expected, but it seems pretty clear that we're um, the the dominant politics of the Democratic Party, right? mm-hmm. um, despite all of the larger prominence of sort of left, you know, supposed leftist anti-imperialist voices in the coalition, mm-hmm. is is towards a, a seemingly more aggressive um, stance against China than we saw during the Trump era. Absolutely. Well, and and um... and and. and yeah, and this, I think, you know, in relation to the con- reconfigurations of sort of multinational capital that that is part of and portends, um, you know, there, there's there got a sort of correlate shift cultural logic that mm-hmm. um, that will, you know, speak to some of the ways we're in a in a different place than what Jameson was describing. Totally. A fun game to play. This is, I can't take credit for this. This is Graham Clark, who I suggest listeners follow on Twitter. I think he's underappreciated and very sharp, uh, is a protectionist or neocon. So they're like, we need to bring back manufacturing, but they don't say in America, what they really mean is bring it back to like Germany, <laughs> where they're going to make all the wind turbines that don't really work that well. Um, not that they would work well if we made them here in Detroit, which is sort of Jennifer Granholm's aspiration. Um, but uh, that that is a crucial thing to pay attention to and how this is going to get sorted out. And I guess like if I'm going to end on a final note, I'm going to sort of take this discussion and the discussion of a at least bipolar world uh, maybe to its end and end with a provocation, which is to say, what if the only way for history to return is to concede to our innermost selves that 
whatever we thought was going to be on offer from the modernist projects or the modern projects is no longer on the table. That doesn't mean necessarily that there's some sort of like return to the ancien regime, but it is a question that I think goes under entertained and must be reckoned with if we're going to think through what's about to unfold before our very eyes. What if none of that is on the table? What is and what can be possible? Great place to leave it. And for further thinking on that question, I again suggest everybody subscribe to Exhaust Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, uh, please come listen. And please, if you do listen, send us email or whatever. We love hearing from people. So, um, and obviously you'll likely hear Jeff again because he's one of our favorite guests and it was uh, an honor to get to come on Outsider Theory and speak with you about this. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and although we didn't um, touch on this we mentioned it earlier that um, the episode we did on Videodrome, David mm. Cronenberg's 1983 film, has some interesting resonances with Jameson's essay, which came out the following year. Yep. And um, so that episode, if you're unfamiliar with Exhaust, another conversation between the two of us might be a good place to start. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Emmett. Thanks for having me, Jeff. All right.